Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Baseball, a look at healthcare politics and policy in Washington, part of Hall Render's Practical Solutions podcast series. I'm John Williams, managing partner of Hall Render's Washington, D.C. office. As always, I am joined by my colleague and D.C. cohort, Andrew Coates. Andrew, how are you today? Doing great, John, and looking forward to this podcast as we get to talk elections and yes, wild yeah. predictions. And I think you know this is our second podcast, and I think it's probably the one we look forward to doing most um, because we get to talk about what you and I geek out on immensely, and that is on um, on elections. I said in our last podcast, right, that um, and I say this all the time, but you know, President Obama famously said that you can't separate policy from politics. And it's one of the truest statements that I've, I've ever heard. Um, well, this, this pre-election podcast is going to be one of the more political podcasts that we do because there is nothing more political than a campaign. Um, but the outcome of these campaigns uh, are going to determine the future of healthcare policy on Capitol Hill. So it's important, I think, that we take a, a close look at how these, how these campaigns might play out. Just as an, an agenda setter, I'm going to talk about how things might play out uh, for elections in the House of Representatives. Andrew's going to do the same thing for the Senate. Uh, quick disclaimer, um, our analysis is not intended to be partisan in any way. Uh, it's merely the result of the reality uh, on the ground as we are now one week uh, from election day. So, Andrew, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Well, unlike the Senate, uh, members of the House of Representatives are up for re-election uh, every two years. So technically, 435 members uh, of the House of Representatives, uh, minus the vacancies, are going to go before the voters this coming Tuesday. And again, I say technically because um, we've got some open seats for folks who are either retired or resigned. Um, and we've got some situations where you've got open seats where you have people who are up for re-election, two people up for election that have never run for Congress before. Currently, Democrats hold a 222 to 212 majority over Republicans with uh, one still uh, vacant seat that will be filled on, on Tuesday. So Republicans in the House need a gain of net. They need a net gain of five seats to win the majority. Um, as of today, November the 1st, 2022, one week before the election, I cannot find a reputable pollster or pundit that doesn't have um, Republicans with a greater than 80% chance of winning the House. And when I say reputable, I mean those that are not obviously playing for one team or the other. So independent analysis right now, or if you even look at the at like the betting uh, platforms in Vegas, um, they've got Republicans winning the House by a better than 80% chance. So um, in fact, I think most folks who follow campaigns closely are at this point in the game trying to determine just how big of a majority uh, Republicans are going to have come January. And I think the range right now that I'm hearing most is somewhere between like 12 uh, and 25 seats. Um, so that would be, I think, 12 being, if, if it's 12 for Republicans, it's a bad night. If it's 25 for Republicans, it's a really good night. Um, and John, I feel like it's inching up even north of 25, <laughs> depending on right. what articles you're reading. Um, even from independent analysis, analysis, 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely true. I mean, 25 seats, it could be north of 25. You know, what, what's interesting is that you, in, in elections past, right, in, take for example, 2012, Obama's first midterm or 94, uh, Clinton's first midterm. In those elections, you had massive swings. I think Obama, that election, Democrats lost 60 seats in the House. And I think the, the Gingrich won in 94, there was more than 40. There are just not that many seats that are considered to be in play anymore. So you really aren't going to see that kind of a swing. But yeah, to your point, I think you're right. I mean, it, it could be north of 25 seats. And I've heard a number of people, a number of people say that. It, the source that I look to most these days um, to, to at, at how these things break down or how they might break down on a race by race basis is um, real clear politics. Uh, they make a forecast for the House and Senate, governor's races, a whole bunch of different races, but they do it using an average of the most reputable polls available. Um, according to the most recent RCP numbers, um, out of the 435 seats in the House of Representatives, there are 113 seats in play. Um, everybody else is considered to be safe. Um, of that 113 number, 33 are considered to be complete toss-ups that could go either way. However, when you look at the rest of the races that are broken down by what are referred to as leans and likely, so you know this race leans Republican or, or that race uh, is likely Democratic. Um, if you look at the leans and likelies, there are 50 seats that RCP has as either leans Republican or likely Republican. By contrast, there are 12 leans Democratic, 18 likely Democratic. So Republicans have a 50 to 30 or 20 seat advantage in the leans and likelies. And that is incredibly significant. Um, I think what's really fascinating for political nerds like me is to see um, where parties have been putting their resources in the final two weeks of the election. Um, I mean, you know this, there's an old saying in, in campaign politics that if you wanna figure out which party is more bullish on its prospects, uh, you simply follow the money. Uh, in other words, on which races are the parties spending money in the final days? Republicans just bought $23 million worth of television ads in eight Democratic districts that President Biden won by double digits. Um, and that includes a significant race that I'll talk about in a minute. Look, that only happens, you only do that if you're confident you're gonna win everywhere else that you're already expected to win. What so, states are we talking about here? Where is that money going? Mostly New York um, and, and Sean Patrick Maloney, and I'll get to him in a minute, but that, that, that's an area where they're really, they're really getting pretty, really getting pretty bullish. Um, and not just the rural areas in New York, right? This is, this is kind of more suburban. Oh, know, absolutely. City. Yeah. I mean, Republicans are feeling, feeling bullish that they can play in, in places that they have, they wouldn't consider playing in, in 10 years or more. Um, you know, by contrast, Democrats are starting to take money away from vulnerable incumbents in Republican leaning districts or, or districts where Trump won. And they're spending that uh, to shore up other incumbents 
who are in districts that that President Biden actually won handily. And, and to your point, you're seeing that in um, again in the New York, New Jersey area, where you've got a an incumbent Democratic incumbent in New Jersey in a suburban district, where they've totally pulled all the money uh, out of that race and sent it elsewhere to shore up another incumbent because they think that person has a better um, a better chance of winning. Um, you know, I, I, I could sit here all day and analyze the, the 113 races that, that RCP has that are in play and, and, and we don't have enough time for that. I'm sure it would be incredibly boring. Um, you don't think people would want to listen to us? Yeah, you know, other than, you know, you, me and, and a few others, um, <laughs> campaign geeks, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think, you know, as much as I'd love to ramble on for the next hour about all 113 races, I just wanted to give folks uh, a couple of regions and a couple of races to watch on election night um, because it's really hard to monitor a whole bunch of them. Um, and we just talked about it. First, look at the results coming out of upstate New York. Uh, there are currently four incumbent seats that are in the RCP toss-up category, Democratic incumbent seats in the RCP toss-up category. There's even one in the leans Republican category with RCP. And if, if you want to talk about following the money, um, one of the races the Democrats have had to put money into that they never expected to is that of incumbent Sean Patrick Maloney. And Maloney is the chairman of the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which we refer to as the DTRIP. Um, that is the entity that is responsible for getting Democrats reelected in the House of Representatives. Republicans have the NRCC, National Republican Campaign Committee. Democrats have the DCCC. If Sean Patrick Maloney loses, it will be the first time that a chairman of a campaign arm in either party has lost a reelection campaign since 1980. Um, and they are having to reallocate significant monies uh, to try to shore up Sean Patrick Maloney. So, that is one, uh, that is a region to watch and a race to watch. Another region, region excuse me, to watch, uh, I think is Southwest Texas, which has long been a democratic stronghold. Um, polling nationwide has shown Republicans making inroads with Hispanic voters. They aren't right to a majority yet, but they're making very significant inroads, much more so than they have in previous elections. Nowhere does that appear to be more evident than in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. And I think the race to watch there is in Texas District 28 between the Democratic incumbent, Henry Cuellar, and the Republican challenger, uh, Casey Garcia. Cuellar is one of the longest serving members uh, of the House of Representatives. Um, Henry is viewed as the most conservative Democrat. Uh, he's pro-life, not many of those left. Uh, in the Democratic Party in the House. Um, if he loses that race, it's going to signal, to, at least to me, that Republicans are, are not just going to have a good night, uh, but that they are also continuing to make uh, inroads with Hispanic voters, uh, which, which is, is a, something to look at for, for future races as well. Also, so the polls in New York don't close until 9 p.m. Eastern time. 
The polls in Texas close at 7 p.m. Central Time. So we're going to know the outcome of those races probably much sooner than we would know in New York. New York still wants to watch uh, and important to watch, but um, I think that Rio Grande Valley of Texas, we're going to know sooner. Um, and, uh, and, and, and also ones that I think are going to be bellwethers. Lastly, a race that I've been telling folks to watch for months and months and months now is the first district of Indiana where uh, first term Democratic incumbent Frank Mervan is facing off against uh, the Republican challenger, Jennifer Ruth Green, who is a black female former Air Force pilot. Republicans have not won the first district of Indiana in almost 100 years. If Republicans win that race, or, or even if Frank just ekes out a narrow win, that's a bellwether. Either one of those results means that Republicans are gonna have a good night nationwide. And, and, and if, if Jennifer Ruth Green wins that race, then I think it's gonna be an exceptionally good night for Republicans. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to think that Indiana won is even on, in play for years. That was Republican Senate candidates wouldn't even go up to the first district because it was such a strong Democrat held. Right. Uh, yeah. So for that right. to be in play for a House Republican candidate, speaks to sort of the uh the tie of the year absolutely i mean it you know we're talking about gary we're talking about maryville we're talking about crown point we're talking about areas that um have been heavily union for decades and decades and decades but many of those districts are, are transitioning you look at ohio and what a lot of the a lot of the former union strongholds have, you know, what's happened there and how they've become republican over the years and i mean just talking about the first lastly um you know the majority of this district is on central time because of its proximity to Chicago. So Gary, Maryville, Crown Point, I think those areas are all central time. But I think there are parts of that district which are on Eastern time with the rest of Indiana. So we may see results start to trickle out of those precincts and those, those, um, those areas of the district uh, before the, the polls close and the rest at seven o'clock. And you always gotta be careful about looking at stuff really early on, right? When there's, oh, there's 2% reporting, you know, or somebody's winning by a thousand votes, but it's only 2% reporting. So you gotta be careful with that. But I do think the first district of Indiana is a significant bellwether uh, to watch on election night. So, so John, you're, you're on your couch next Tuesday. You're, you're following on Twitter. You have cable news on watching the election results. Are there any races you me. see yeah, coming in thinking, all right, this will be a big night for Republicans, or oh, maybe this isn't as big a night as we thought? Um, are there any races you're watching? Well, I'll ask you that question. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, you're as a Virginia resident, right? You're familiar with Virginia politics, and I know that there's some Democratic incumbents in Virginia, like yeah, Stanford. Virginia is another state like India. Polls close early. Um, this, this, the two seats you keep hearing about are the second and the seventh district in Virginia. So yeah, two seats you want to watch in Virginia are the second and seventh districts. Um, these are seats that Democrats won by 52 and 51% in 2020, a better year for Democrats. And the second district, this is the Virginia Beach area. So you have a strong military presence. This is Loria's seat. She won by 52% in 20 that's going to be a really difficult seat for Democrats to hang on to. And then the seventh district is Spamberger's seat. She represents the area, the wealthy suburbs west of Richmond, all the way up about 100 miles north 
almost to the border of, of Southern Fairfax County. This went, uh, Spanberger won barely by 51% in 20. I, watch, keep an eye on these two seats and keep an eye on the margins. If it's really close again, it may be, Democrats may, may do okay. Um, but if Republicans winning by, uh, you know, 53, 54, 55%, uh, it could be a really difficult night for Democrats nationwide. Yeah, and I think you talk about margins. I think that's really important. One, you're absolutely right. I, you know, right. You got you got to look at at polls that close early. You know, states that that have polls that close early, so you can start getting those numbers. But I think you're right about margins too. And what a lot of people don't understand about campaign results is, you, you look at a race and you say, okay, you know, that was you know, fifty two forty eight. You know, results. Well. In campaign politics, that's thousands and thousands and thousands of votes, right? So you can kind of look at it and say, oh, well, I mean, it was, you know, 4%, it was a 3% margin. That wasn't that big. But in raw vote numbers, it was huge. Um, and it's considered, you know, to be a significant victory, especially the way that the electorate is divided these days. So, yeah, no, really good ones to uh, to, to watch in, in Virginia with early returns. You want to you wanna lead us off into the Senate, Andrew? I will, but... Before we get to that, do you have any prediction or are you staying steering clear of predictions for the House? No, I mean, I'm making predictions. I, I, I think it's going to be closer to the 25 number. I'm not sure I'm buying that it's going over 25 in terms of pickups for Republicans. But I do think, um, again, if you follow the money and you, you know, that that shows you who has the momentum. And if Republicans are not spending any money to shore up their incumbents, then they're free to go on offense. And it's clear that Republicans are playing offense here and Republicans are playing defense. And when you see that to me, it means that you're gonna have, you're gonna end up at the higher end of that 12 to 25 range. And then if it's north of 25 and it's just a bloodbath for Democrats, could you see a change in Democrat leadership coming? Oh man, you know what? We we I'm not sure we got enough time for that for that one. Um, that's a whole separate podcast. Conventional wisdom would say yes. Conventional wisdom would say that if you lose a majority that by by that kind of a margin, that the leadership should be changed. Um, however, Democrats in Washington have have had. You know, I, I let's just call it what it is. I mean, leadership issues. Um, I, I, I personally know many younger members of the Democratic caucus in the House in Washington who very much want to move up the leadership ladder. And they've not been able to do so because the current leadership structure of you know, Nancy Pelosi and Clyburn and Steny Hoyer um, continue to run. Um, it's fascinating because you know, one of the things I admire most about Nancy Pelosi is, is her ability to wield power um, because power is just about everything in Washington. And there is, there's few people in the history of the speakership that has wielded power more significantly than she has. She also comes from a school of thought that you just don't give up power. You make somebody take it from you. And so it's going to be fascinating to watch to see, even if it's a bloodbath, um, whether or not she still says you got to come take it from me. Um, so yeah, um, we'll, we'll, we'll have a whole separate podcast on that one after the election. Right. Absolutely. 
So let's dig into the Senate here. One of the most well-worn election phrases that gets trotted out every two years, this is the most important election of our <laughs> lifetime. Now, not to throw cold water on our preview here, but if you live outside the Beltway, uh, this is really, as far as the Senate goes, just another midterm election, uh, assuming the, the Republicans flip the, the House. And I, as John mentioned, I, I think they're going to. Uh, Senate leadership's going to remain the same. You're going to ha still have Schumer and, and Durbin, and Republican leadership's going to remain the same in the Senate as well. You're going to have McConnell and Thune. And neither party is going to be close to getting 60, 60 seats in the Senate. So again, given the House flips Republicans, you're not going to see Inflation Reduction Act, repeal of ACA, massive types of legislative packages getting moved next Congress. Now, that said, for folks inside the Beltway, uh, next Tuesday means everything. Jobs depend on it, and it sets how Washington operates for the next two years. So Right now, the Senate is currently split at 50-50 with Democrats having the tie break and therefore the majority. And Republicans have a brutal map to defend this year. This, um, I, I go to former Senator Fred Thompson. He was Senator from Tennessee. He was mm -hmm. the district attorney in law and order. I think he was captain on one of the subs in Hunt for Red October. Right. He had a saying that said, everyone in the Senate has one of two things going for them. Neither had a rich daddy or they had great timing. <laughs> and Senate Republicans in this cycle have had great timing. If you go back six years prior to now, it was, it was 2016. That was a big year for Republicans, the, kind of the Trump wave that came in. Six years prior to that was 2010. That was the Tea Party wave. And even six years prior to that was 2004. And that was when Bush won re-election. So because of that, Republicans are defending a lot of seats. And in Conversely, there just aren't a lot of seats where they have a chance to realistically flip from Democrats. Right. The best three chances uh, seats states are, I think, if you look at the polls, Nevada is probably the best the best chance for Republicans to flip a state. Polling, and, and I, I go to Real Clear Politics as well, is consistently shown uh, Adam Laxalt um, ahead of the incumbent there, Catherine Cortez Masto. And I think a lot of people have considered that it's gonna be a Republican flip. The second best state would probably be Georgia, uh, just because it's such a red state. And this is presumably gonna be a good year for Republicans. You have Herschel Walker, obviously the Georgia football star, um, who, who's popular there uh, amongst Republicans. And, and folks see that probably as a good pickup opportunity. Well, the other thing I think too, to, you know, just to jump in real quick on Georgia is to watch is the the governor's race between Kemp and Stacey Abrams and just what kind of coattails Kemp has. If you look at those numbers right now, Kemp has stretched it out to a double digit lead over Abrams. And so the question that would become there, and I don't want to jump ahead too far, you know, on Pennsylvania with you, but I think you, you got to, or, or other states, you got to look at, at what kind of coattails some of these people at the top of the ticket, because yes. what people may not understand is that the governor runs at the top of the ticket. Um, so when you go to vote and you look at from the top to the bottom of the ballot, the governor's at the top. And so let's talk about what kind of coattails you have for down ballot races. And so, yeah, that'll be fascinating to watch to see whether or not Kemp is able to 
to give you know Walker a little push across the finish line on his own coattails or drag, I guess, across the finish line. Another top of the ticket type of deal is Arizona. Right. And um, for a long time, <laughs> Kelly was presumably ahead in the polls and in, um, it kind of been written off as you know, Democrats are going to hold on to that fairly easily. But that has really tightened. Uh, well, and it's really tightened. And the other thing that, you know, we, we're down to the last week, right, where things happen is, is this morning, the, the, the libertarian candidate in that Arizona Senate race um, dropped out and endorsed uh, Blake Masters, the Republican. So, right, in, in, in a race where you, that is so, where the, where the margin is so narrow right now, and any kind of swing like that, any development like that has such an impact, because um, the impact only has to be very small. Um, so that could, that could push, you know, masters across the finish line with that development. So those are the three, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, are the three states where Republicans are seen to have a realistic chance of flipping. There's three other races that are worth watching on next Tuesday, Colorado, New Hampshire, and Washington. Now these have gone, they've been more reliable blue states the last couple of cycles. And you have fairly strong incumbents there, but I think if you see a wave type of election, one of these states could kind of get swept up in the wave and turn uh, and turn red. I know in Washington, um, which is about as deep blue a state as you get, you have a very strong candidate there, Tiffany Smiley, who's done a great job raising money um, and really forced Democrats to to put money into that state and defend it. Um, Colorado. Uh, Michael Bennett's there, and you have another strong Republican candidate um, running. And then New Hampshire polls yeah. contend. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. New Hampshire—that's a fascinating one to watch, right? Because you, you've got a situation where I think Republicans pulled money out of that because their candidate is a little too on the fringes, let's just say. But that's closed, you know, in recent days. In New Hampshire. Yep. So you have those three, and it, it, there's, those are three potential flip opportunities. And then you get into the states where Republicans are defending seats. And, you know, a year ago at this time, there was a lot of hand wringing amongst Republicans over how much they had to defend, and these seats could all go Democrat, and it could be Democrats could have a big number in the Senate. But it's really gone down to uh, just a couple states now where it looks like Republicans, you know, would could potentially lose. The biggest state is going to be Pennsylvania. And Stephen Law, who heads up the SLF, the Senate Leadership Fund, this is the biggest Republican super PAC um, who controls all the purse strings and where money goes. He has said if Republicans win Pennsylvania, they're going to win the majority. And listen, there was the debate last week. There's the old cliche that you cannot win um, a Senate seat based on the debate, although you sometimes can lose it. Um, mm -hmm. And that was- and That's happened to Republicans before, absolutely. Look at 2012 in Indiana. Right. Missouri, Indiana, yeah. Republicans have a history of losing because of debates. So we'll see what happens there in Pennsylvania. In Wisconsin, you have um, Ron Johnson. It looks like he's gonna hold on there and if not, starting to pull away a little bit. In Ohio, you have J.D. Vance. Uh, looks like he's going to be able to hold on there. I know a lot of folks were 
nervous when when Portman announced he's retiring, but I think Vance should win there. Similar situation in North Carolina where you had Richard Burr uh, announce his retirement, and uh, Bud is is got the Republican nomination and seems like he's going to be able to win, although that may be closer um, than some other states. And then in Florida, Missouri, you have uh, Rubio in Florida, which I, I think is closer than some people realize, but Rubio should be able to win there. And in Missouri, uh, that's just become such a red state that I don't think there's any chance uh, Republicans don't take that state. John, before we get into predictions, do you have any takes on those states uh, that we just discussed or backing up into the states where Democrats are holding power? Yeah, I, I think you, you mentioned the, the three states of New Hampshire, Colorado, and Washington. I think we're going to see a surprise. There's going to be surprise somewhere in the Senate races on election night. Um, and not just the close ones that we're talking about, like Arizona or Pennsylvania or Georgia. There's going to be a surprise somewhere. Um, for whatever reason, uh, Republicans are typically, or, or they've been underpolled in the last several election cycles, whether, you know, whether Republicans, voters are not answering polls or whatever it happens to be. <clears throat> you talk about Trump in, in 16, you talk about Trump in 20, and, and, and how off so many of the polls were. I, I think that Republicans, for whatever reason it is, get undercounted. And so I think that in one of those three races, you're going to see a surprise. I know from talking to people who do what we do, who are, are employed by a large corporation that's based in the state of Washington, um, that, that works routinely with Patty Murray, the incumbent senator in, in Washington state, that she's in trouble and she knows she's in trouble. And she's running very, very scared right now. And this person thinks that she's going to lose. And this is somebody who's very familiar with Patty Murray and very familiar with Washington state politics. So um, yeah, I mean, that's my prediction is that is, uh, I, I do think that the Republicans are gonna take the majority back in the Senate. I didn't think that 28 days ago. Uh, I do think it now, and I do think there's gonna be a surprise somewhere along the way with, a, with an incumbent that's gonna get beat that that we kind of thought might be possible, but ends up being a reality. So I agree. I, I think Republicans are going to pick up two to three seats in my guess is Nevada and then either Georgia, Arizona. And then I think you could see a shocker in either Colorado or Washington. And um, you know, we'll, we'll, that would put Senate control with Republicans at either 5347 or 5248. That's my prediction. We'll know a lot more, obviously, next Tuesday. Uh, that will probably bleed into Wednesday, Thursday, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, we're going to have some some recounts. I mean, I guess right in uh, could be in a number of states. So we, right. I, I don't want to say it, but we may not, we may not know the results. We're going to know the results on the control of the House on election night, but we're not going to know it. There's a chance we're not going to know it in the Senate. Let's hope. Let's hope we do. Let's hope we do. So, but it'll give us something to come back and talk about. Uh, in the next podcast. So, um, well, Andrew, thank you uh, for that. Uh, and thank everybody uh, who has joined us today. If you'd like more information about what 
Andrew and I do, even though we really didn't even talk at all about that today, um, <laughs> which is how we provide federal advocacy service to our clients. Please visit our website at hallrender.com or feel free to reach out to me at jwilliams at hallrender.com, Andrew at acoats at hallrender.com. Uh, one last disclaimer, please remember the views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants only and do not constitute legal advice, which is not a surprise considering we gave no legal advice in this one today. Um, we hope you'll join us for our next podcast, which will be out sometime after next Tuesday, uh, when we will look at how the results will impact the future of healthcare policy on Capitol Hill. So, so long, everybody.